I'm not mistaken, we all grew up here in the United States, correct? Is there anybody here who grew up in another country? Is there anybody here who's lived in another country for an extended time? Okay, got a couple of people. So you know what I'm going to be talking about today, at least a little bit. If you've lived in another country, I've, I've visited other countries. I was in Africa in various countries for six weeks at a time. I've been in Peru a few different times. And when we go to different countries, we experience different cultural practices. We all grew up in the United States, so we all know what it's like to live here and do American things. But our practices, our customs, our cultures are not practiced across the world. As much as we think that the United States is the center of everything that goes on, it's really not. There's other things, other places that are ran differently. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes that's a really good thing. One thing that is different is, one example is in Switzerland, where they have something called honesty shopping. So honesty shopping is a world different than anything we'd see here in the U.S., at least in our area. So in these small villages of Switzerland, uh, many shops are ran by farmers who sell their fresh produce, milk, cheese, butter, meat, honey, etc. to the local village that they live in. And these farmers are obviously very busy during the day. And so they tend to their farms while their shops are open. And this is where honesty shopping comes in. So people go into their shop during the day. They they take whatever they want. They take what they need. And they leave the money in a basket just sitting right there on the counter. And at the end of the day, the farmer comes and he closes up shop and collects the earnings for the day. Now, can you imagine something like that working here in, in Rockford or Grand Rapids? Everybody just walks into Meyer, takes whatever they want. They just throw their money in a big open basket at the front door. <laughs> that would not work very well. And it kind of maybe just sounds bizarre or foreign to us that this would be the way that things would work. Can you imagine like the supermercado on 28th Street, you know, just letting people walk in and out with whatever they want with a basket of money sitting there? So another example of this uh, different cultural experiences in Colombia where they have what they call tranquilo. Tranquilo. Which is a world different than I think what we experience here in the U.S. Tranquilo just means chill out. Don't worry, it's not important. From the source I found, it says that uh, late buses, missed planes, teachers showing up late to school... Going a couple of weeks without a job, that's all part of the tranquilo attitude, you know? Now, compare that to the highly scheduled life of most Americans. I mean, we're showing up for meetings at specific times, got to be there 10 minutes early or you're late, meeting people for coffee, setting endless alarms, taking kids to different activities, uh, running to and from places, always rushing around to the next thing. Americans are much less tranquilo than Colombians, that's for sure, at least in my experience. And I bet the laid-back attitude of the Colombian way would probably drive some of us crazy. Like, we had a meeting at 5, it's now 7, they show up, oh yeah, we're just out, you know, getting dinner or whatever. Yeah, that, that wouldn't fly. So growing up, I don't know if any of you tried this, but I definitely tried this, you know, where you have spaghetti noodles, you know, slurp them up, yeah, and then your mom... looks at you like that it's not appropriate to slurp your food or your soup at dinner 
But however, in different places around the world, for example, in China, slurping your noodles is actually a way that you tell your host that you love the meal. It's actually culturally acceptable and pushed that you slurp your noodles. Now, my mom would have, I don't want to say beat me, but she would have given me a stern look or talking to if I was in a restaurant and I was slurping my noodles. But I think this is something we should adopt in the U.S. because I think it'd be way more fun if you walk into Olive Garden and the people are laughing at it. I think it would just be hilarious. Speaking of restaurants, in South Korea and many other countries in the world, you shouldn't tip servers. It's actually rude to tip servers because they are paid a fair wage just like everybody, every other job. And so when you tip someone, you're like looking down on them. You're, they are like below you. And so if you're ever in South Korea or in another country, don't just assume that your cultural norms are what they have. Okay? So in Africa, shaking with your left hand is impolite. In South Korea, tipping is impolite. The last example I have for us this morning comes from Japan in the form of subway pushers. That's right. There's an entire job whose main purpose is to force people into subways as tight as they can be. There are so many people trying to use public transportation in Japan that there is no space to waste. So I'm telling you right now, this would not go over well in the United States. You got strangers pushing you and shoving you, invading. We got bubbles here in the U.S., okay? Don't talk to me. Don't knock on my door. I don't have anything for you, okay? This is the American way. We all like our space. I mean, we wave at each other. You know, there's the Midwestern, you know, head nod or whatever. But no subway pushing. So if you ever go to Japan and some guy just starts pushing you a train, he's not being rude. He's paid to do that. We all have our own cultural experiences, and they they vary a little bit, right? They vary from city to state to different regions of the U.S. Sometimes the South feels like in a completely different world, different country. But what we all share in common, not just here in the U.S., but all across the world, is that we are living in this world, right? That seems like a pretty simple fact. And the Bible talks about this world, this, this current age, as being ruled by sin and death. Even though our day-to-day lives vary quite a bit from country to country, we are all still living under this same general rules, the same system. We are all affected by this broken age, and we're all subject to death, no matter what country we were born in. So if nothing else, we are all bound by this common system of living. No matter what country you travel to, you're going to find the realities of humanity are the same in this world. There's brokenness and there's death. But this is not what God desires for his creation. He didn't design the earth to be this broken, fallen world where things go wrong. He didn't want death and sin to rule his creation. And so he made a way for us and the world system as, all, as in a whole to overcome what it currently is. He made a way for us to be elevated beyond the rules that govern this age. And this morning we're going to be taking a look at God's plan and how through his son Jesus, we can be conquerors. 
We can overcome this world. We can be freed from the bondage of death and sin. So in our discussion this morning, we're going to start in 1 John chapter 5. If you would, go ahead and please turn with me there. So in John chapter 4, in 1 John, excuse me, chapter 4, John is talking about how Jesus is greater than the world. And how Jesus is in us, and therefore we're greater than the world. And we should be loving others. We should be loving God. And he talks about how the love of God should invade our lives and transform how we live. And he goes on to instruct his readers in the truth of what living as a child of God means. So that's where we pick up the book in 1 John chapter... I was too busy talking to you. I didn't even turn there myself. So that's where we pick up in 1 John chapter 5. Is John telling us what it means to be a child of God. Whoever believes, starting in verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the child, children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The way he, John writes this is a little confusing. I think it's a little hard to follow. There's a lot of connections here. So let's try to follow John's train of thought. First he says that those who believe in Jesus as God's Messiah, that means God's anointed one, whoever believes that Jesus is the anointed king, the savior of the world, they are born children of God. They're reborn. They're this new creation. And if they're children of God, they're God's people. Then he goes on to say that as children of God, we should love other children of God. If we love being a child of God, we should love God and we should love his children as well. And if we love God, we should do what he asks us to do. Then he goes on to give us this idea of inheritance because we're children. We inherit things. That's what children do. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Whatever is born of God, inheritance, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So it's through belief. Here John is saying that those who believe by our faith are conquerors of the world. That's what the word overcome means. Nikeo in Greek it means to overcome, to conquer, to win, to be victorious means to defeat. So by our belief in Jesus, this is kind of the summation, the simple idea of what John says in those first five verses. By our belief that Jesus is the Son of God, we can overcome and conquer this world. Now we've got to pause here for a minute because there are a few pieces of the puzzle that we need to have before this really makes sense in our minds. First of all, what does it mean to overcome the world? It doesn't, that's not something we normally talk about. It's not we, we know what it means to get pepperoni on our pizza. But do we know what it means to overcome the world? So that's what we need to answer. That's one question we need to answer. 
Another question we need to answer is, Jesus is the one that conquered the world, so how do we get to be a part of that? If Jesus is the one that conquered the world, overcome the world, how do we get to be a part of that? We need to answer those two questions in order to make sense of John, 1 John chapter 5. So we're going to be looking at the first part, overcoming the world. We're going to try to understand that. So look at verse 19 of 1 John chapter 5 with me. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So John is trying to help us understand what it means. The evil one, in other terms, is the devil. Okay? You can also say Satan. He's also described as the adversary, which is the Hebrew word hasatan, which is where we get Satan. They also call him the prince of the power of the air or god of this age even. And there are many titles for Satan. Yeah, he has in scripture, but they're all talking about this deviant being who rebelled against God and is now ruling this age by the power of sin and death. That's what 1 John 19 says. The evil one rules the whole world. We know that this is true. We, we know that Satan is the god of this age, the, the one who rules this current broken system, because we see other, way, other places in Scripture as well. I'm going to have these up on the screen for you, but I want you to stay in 1 John chapter 5, because we're going to come back to it. So keep your Bibles open. Don't close them yet. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, the customs of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. We just said that's another name for Satan. That's another name for the devil. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Uh, just so you guys know, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul calls Satan the god of this age. Little, little case G. Okay? The god of this age. Because Satan deals in the main characteristics of this age, as we've already said, which are sin and death. Right? That's how Satan works. That's what he works in. He destroys. He lies. He kills. And Ephesians 2 clearly says that this is the course of the world. How Satan rules. The main customs of this world, so to speak. They are sin, death, and disobedience. And everyone born into this world, which was all of us, live in this custom. We live in the cultural system that the world is as it is described here in Ephesians 2. So when we see the phrase, overcome the world, we should be thinking, overcoming Satan. We should be thinking, overcoming the power of sin and death. Overcoming the rulers and authorities and powers that govern this world. He isn't talking about the little troubles that we encounter in our day-to-day lives. So when he says, when he overcomes the world, he isn't talking about the long line at the DMV. Okay, when he's talking about overcoming the world, he isn't talking about the car in front of you at the drive-thru who doesn't know what they want to order and is taking a long time. He isn't talking about stubbing your toe. He's not even talking about bigger things like financial hardship. When Jesus says he has overcome the world, it's much bigger even than political transitions or cultural trends. We're talking about the fundamental principles of how this world currently works. Overcoming the world is a huge 
system-wide overchange, which is actually a pretty big deal, right? That's a pretty big deal, and it's something that we shouldn't take lightly. Because when we read through the Bible and we see the phrase overcome the world, we can just kind of breeze past it. But we should stop and reflect on the significance of what it actually means. Think about it this way. We can extend our lives through medical practice and healthy living, right? We can protect ourselves from the extent, for, to an extent, from natural disasters. We can build buildings. We can have shelters. Stronger buildings protect from stronger storms. We can even build up wealth to help pad ourselves from the shifts in the world, from financial hardship. We can build up wealth and we can pass that along to our children and our grandchildren. There are a lot of things that we can do to have control over the world around us. But the things we cannot change about our lives are these big problems that struggle, that all humanity struggles with. That is sin and death. No matter your intellect, your wealth, your status, your influence, or health, you cannot overcome the sin in your life, and you cannot overcome death. Keeping that in mind, that no one has ever done that, it's a pretty big deal that John says in his letter that we can overcome it. That we can overcome the world, that we can be the people who rise above sin and death. So how do we do this if no one else has? How do we become overcomers when the wealthiest and smartest people in the world haven't done it? I want us to be honest, there's nothing particularly amazing about all of us. Okay? I, I don't want to say that you're, you all are very unique and special and made in God's image, but we're not unique enough to overcome sin and death. Okay? There's nothing that special about us. Hebrews 2.14 gives us a little insight into how ordinary people like you and me, the ones who make mistakes, the ones who sin, how do we overcome sin and death? Hebrews 2.14 gives us insight. Since therefore the children, as we already said, those who believe in Jesus are the children of God, that's us, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, meaning Jesus, is likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. God, through his son Jesus, and Jesus' death on the cross, used Satan's very weapon of death against him to turn the tables of the world upside down. So I, I imagine like this is like the greatest uh, war tactic of all time. He uses Satan's very weapon against him. So Jesus died on the cross and was raised to eternal life. And that's when the chains of this world were broken. Sin and death no longer had power over Jesus. So how can it be said that through Jesus' death, we become overcomers? Well, Jesus made the devil powerless. Rather, God gave Jesus the power over death in Hades, that's what it says in Revelation 1.18, that Jesus now is in control. So how do we become overcomers? Jesus did it, so how do we get there? Well, as we see, we were born into the system, which means we are part of this natural part of this, this sin and death. But when we die with Jesus, we are raised into a new system. 
We are raised into who Jesus is. Romans 8, 15, or Romans 8, 15 through 17 puts together this puzzle for us. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which you cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit itself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. What are we heirs of? Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If needed, if indeed, excuse me, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. If we believe in Jesus, we become heirs with Jesus. That means we inherit the same things that Jesus did from the Father. What did Jesus receive from God? Eternal life and power over and freedom from sin. So now this brings us all the way back to where we started. Let's look at 1 John 5, 1 through 5 again. But this time, as we read it, we have the understanding that overcoming the world means conquering sin and death. And with it, when we read this time, we have the understanding that we are co-heirs with Jesus. That we get to be a part of what he accomplished through his death and resurrection. So let's read this again with our new insights, with all of this fresh in our mind, and see how that changes the reading. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Inheritance, heirship. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is a victory, the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember, no one in history has been able to break the bondage of sin and death. No amount of money, no amount of power has accomplished this until Jesus. And no one else has been able to do that except through Jesus. And we get to be a part of that. Let that sink in. Hello, we get to be a part of that. That is a pretty drastic change. And it's not just a change like cultural, like being shoved into a train in Japan or slurping noodles in China. We're talking about the literal world-changing system overhaul that Jesus is bringing to this age. And we aren't just moving from one country to another, but we are moving from one world system to another world system. We as Christians get to say that we have conquered, we have overcome, we have been victorious over sin and death. That pumps me up. We are victorious over sin and death. And while we will still make mistakes in this life, we are covered by God's grace. And while we are still going to be making mistakes in our life, the Spirit's intervention is transforming us into the image of Christ, leading us away from sin. And while we still may die in this age, we have the hope of resurrection in Jesus to look forward to. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, But when this perishable, 
will have, will have put on the imperishable. And when this mortal will have put on the immortality, then we will come about saying that it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the works of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Our perishable and mortal bodies will be transformed into imperishable and immortal bodies, the same kind that Jesus received at his resurrection. I was playing softball this week and my shoulder hurts. Tom, do you want your back healed? Do you want a different body? Deb, your foot. Guess what? You're going to get that and more in the resurrection. The immortal is going to be placed onto us. We are going to be changed, transformed, moved into a new system. Death will no longer be found in us. It will no longer have power over us. That's good news. That's really good news. And overcoming victory through Jesus comes with some costs. It's a free gift. We don't have to pay anything for it. But receiving this gift transforms our lives. It changes who we are. So if you want to be a part of this system, there's a few things about you that are going to have to change. Number one, first thing that you need to do is believe in Jesus as your Lord if you want to be a part of this new system. Charles Spurgeon, he was a pastor from the 1800s. He says this about belief, about faith. If you look up in a Greek dictionary about the word belief, you will find that the word belief does not merely mean to believe, but to trust, to confide in, to commit to, to entrust with, so on and so forth. And the true meaning of faith is confidence in and reliance upon. The Greek word for belief is pistevo, and it means to commit to something fully. We're talking about jumping out of a plane, believing in the parachute kind of faith. All right? You don't jump out of a plane and say, oh yeah, I believe in parachutes, like some abstract idea. You believe that it's going to work, that it's going to change. You're putting your life into it. That's what belief means when we say, oh, we believe in Jesus. It doesn't say we think he's a real person. We're trusting in him. We're confiding in him. We're giving our life over to him. We have to believe in him as the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the son of God, the king. He becomes our master. 1 John 5, 3 says, his commandments are not burdensome. Now, while we have to give our life over to Jesus, he's not a harsh master. His yoke is easy. How is it not burdensome? Because it leads us to a fulfilled life. It leads us to a more peaceful life, one filled with meaning. And ultimately, it leads us to eternal life. Any weight, any burden is not burdensome in the light of that truth.
Number two, you got to say goodbye to sin. A part of overcoming that we talked about is overcoming sin in this world. Therefore, sin in our lives. Now, we aren't in this alone. If we make a commitment to Jesus, we are given tools to help us fight the sin in our lives. It's not like, oh, you believe in Jesus, good luck. Do your best to resist it because we can't do that. We are given the Spirit of God to strengthen us and encourage us as we're being tempted. We are given direct access to the Father through prayer. We just read out Hebrews 2.14. Just a little later in that chapter, it says that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are. Therefore, he can help us when we are being tempted. All that happens through prayer. Not only that, we are given a community of fellow believers to help hold us accountable. We are not in this effort alone to live a holy life for God. To live differently than the world system that we are living in currently. We are not alone when we seek after God's heart in our daily lives. Number three, you got to love God and you got to love people. You're, let me be a little more polite about this. Those Christians who are just bitter at the world, they don't like people. They just are always complaining. Does that sound like Jesus to you? I know that we can sometimes get bitter and the world hurts us and it's easy to lash out or be mad. But we got to love people. And we got to love God. That means doing what he says. The first, or the verse that we read out of 1 John says that those who are born of God need to love the other children of God and keep his commandments. And if we do these things... We are love, if we love God's people, we are loving God through that practice. And it's, it's, loving God is a lot more than just not sinning. It's about doing the right things as well. Now, this doesn't mean there's some kind of checkbox list that we can accomplish. I know that a lot of us are driven and we, we like having checkboxes. We can say we did this and this and this. See, see, I'm holy now because I did this and I did this and I did this. That's not how it works. Rather, our new love-driven nature and conduct as being trans- because we're transformed by Christ, the natural outpouring of that is loving God and loving people and doing what he says. Our life becomes the proof of the transformation that's taken a part of us. That's what James says in his book. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You're going to see who I am and how I'm transformed by the fruit of my life. So that's what it takes to love God and love people. To open up our hearts to God's love. I know I'm kind of getting lengthy here and I'm sorry for that. But belief in Jesus is so important. Because it means that we get to overcome this world. That's good news. And it doesn't take any special prerequisites. It doesn't take us uh, getting our lives figured out first. It doesn't mean we've got to be perfect before we come to Jesus. It doesn't take a special degree, thank goodness, because I do not want to go back to school. It doesn't take a lot of money. Once again, good thing, because I don't got a lot of it. 
And it doesn't take some special influence or power. It doesn't take a special position. But what it does take is giving our hearts and love to God. That's what God wants. That's what Jesus wants. They want our lives. They want our love and our affection and obedience. They want us to follow them so that we can become their children. And if we're children, we are heirs to the amazing victory that Jesus has won over death and sin. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to answer it truthfully. Do you want to be an overcomer? This isn't rhetorical. Let me ask you again. Do you want to be an overcomer? Yes. Let's ask it again. Do you want to be an overcomer? Yes. Of course you do, because it's amazing. And I want us to be a church that realizes this truth and practices it in our daily lives. I want us to be partakers of the eternal life that is coming. I want, us to, I want to let that sink in. We are not going to die. Might die in this age, but in the long run, we are not going to die. That seems kind of crazy. It's hard to wrap our minds around, but we are never going to die. When the next age comes, when Jesus comes back, we are going to be raised up, changed to immortality, And we are going to live alongside God and Jesus in paradise for the rest of time. That doesn't even make sense. What is time when eternity is there? What's a thousand years? That's irrelevant in the kingdom. God created us for life. He said that in the beginning, this brokenness and sin is not how God created this world. He created it for good and he created us for life. And that is what he intends to give to those who love him. And believe in his son. Let's pray. God, thank you for your victory. It is exciting. It is powerful. It is good news. Thank you for the life that you give us. Thank you for setting up your plan of salvation. For working it out. For offering it to us. For sharing your word with us that leads us to the truth. I just pray that you work in our hearts to make that truth a reality of our lives, to accept your Messiah, to accept your King, to accept what it means to live in your kingdom. In your son's name we pray. Amen.